0: Hello from Yerushalayim and Beit Shemesh. It's Binyamin Rose and myself, Gedalia Gutentag, with Mishpacha's Homefront, covering Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Binyamin, hello to you. Hello, Gedalia. There's
1: been a lot of developments, especially on the political front, since we met last.
0: Okay, let's get to them straight away. But first, let me just share that when I look at the pictures and videos out of Gaza, Binyamin, the phrase that occurs to me most is one out of the Haggadah, which is, we talk about Dom, Vo'esh, Vesimiris, Oshan, blood, fire, and pillars of smoke. And I think that summarizes what well, we know uh, that Gaza City's Hamas defenses are being breached and reports of close quarters battles between Golani soldiers overnight and Hamas force who tried to swarm and overcome the, the soldiers' armored personnel carriers and were destroyed, thankfully. That gives us a little insight. But I have to say that the fog of war here is very, very intense. So let's leave that and talk about some of the politics. Miami, what's on your mind? I noticed
1: there was an article that appeared in Politico, which was written by three different staff writers that talked about the Biden administration opinion that Benjamin Netanyahu might not be around that much longer as prime minister of Israel because of different pressures on him to resign. We know in Israel, many people are upset about the terrible security breach that happened on Simchostora, and that is going to reflect on Netanyahu and other military and intelligence leaders at the proper time. The Biden administration might be writing Netanyahu's political obituary a bit prematurely. Firstly, Israel's not going to have an election in the middle of a war. So that's not happening. If Netanyahu were to resign, so Basically there's a lot of different combinations that could happen but the simplest one would be that the number 2 in the liquid party who is Yevgeniy Galant would take over as prime minister but again currently defense minister currently defense minister but again that's all speculation they didn't even quote anyone they basically attributed their story to a, a top current US official and a top former US official which there's a lot of ways you can source a story like this you could say a, a top administration official you could say a top administration official who spoke to us without attribution because he's not allowed to speak on the record. There's a lot of ways you could do it, but just to quote a top official, to me strikes me as something that's uh, just speculative in nature, but we do see this is going on. And at the same time, I think they ought to be careful because basically Israel could say the same thing about Biden. There's an election in another year in America, a year from today in a week, And Biden is no youngster, nor is Netanyahu, but Biden's older. I think it's really a bad time for the U.S., who's trying to show solidarity with Israel, to be speculating about this in such a frontal lead story in a major publication.
0: And speculating, they are, meaning that in the media world, I think it's important to understand how very cynical and calculated the use of media leaks are. So, for example, we have seen over the last year Thomas Friedman at the New York Times become a portal for undigested thoughts coming out of the higher reaches of the Biden administration, probably Joe Biden himself. And so, the interesting thing is that you know my only question is why they would have chosen to leak this through Politico and not through the New York Times.
1: My speculation would be because if they were going to use the New York Times, it would be because they were trying to convey a policy or a major change in policy. If they just want to get rumors out there, then uh, Politico is as good a place as any. Now, speaking of cynical use of the media, you wanted to talk about Sraela speech, which is scheduled for tomorrow.
0: It's tension and anticipation, or to want a better word, is building here in the Israeli press. And I, I assume that by three o'clock tomorrow afternoon, Erev Shabbos, we're going to be seeing a lot of Israelis going to be tuning in to a terror leader who's somewhere in a bunker, probably under the Dakhir quarter of, of Beirut in Lebanon. And we don't know what we're going to see. The speculation that he's going to be declaring war or he's going to be justifying why he's not declaring war. And I think it's very, very important to understand that the context here, which is that the IDF is ultimately on the defensive, on the Northern front. They really, really do not want to showdown with the Hezbollah at the moment. Although earlier in the week, I quoted an ex-member, a senior member of the Shin Bet who was urging, he said, no, we have to now go after the Hezbollah as well because they are just ready to do what Hamas did, and worse. So there are those voices in the security establishment. Yet, I would say that it seems to be Israel is desperately trying to avoid the two-front war. The U.S. pressure there is telling. They don't want that two-front war. But, But what I do think it has to be said is that we'll be factoring into Nasrallah when he makes his speech and when he makes his decisions will be the fact that he's probably been surprised by the strength of Israel's response, both militarily and in terms of Israeli society's cohesion, uh, its willingness to fight. I would hazard that when he comes to build that speech, he'll be looking at those factors.
1: Maybe it's wishful thinking on my part. I don't think that uh, Nasrallah would uh, use a speech to declare all-out war or any kind of war against Israel. It's probably just a propaganda tool. Part of it is probably because of the lack of i wouldn't even say lack of support but the opposition that he's facing in lebanon of course we know that hezbollah basically controls the lebanese government but there are still some independent actors in lebanon who really wish hezbollah would just disappear and go away and has i would say nasral is trying to shore up whatever strength that he has and uh, try to show that he's still relevant
0: so uh, i'm hoping that's all it is i want to raise something that i've seen i think most u.s Listeners won't have come across because this was something in a British paper, the Daily Telegraph, which is a kind of like an equivalent to the Wall Street Journal, broadsheet in England. And they came up with a story last week, which is about Hamas's financing. We know that Hamas were a sort of a ragtag bunch of insurgents when Israel left Gaza in 2005. We now know that they are anything but they're a sophisticated terror army, not as big as Hezbollah, but very threatening, as we've seen in a very, unfortunately, traumatic sense for the Jewish people. What has helped them transform is obviously coaching and funding and arming from Iran. But another thing is evidence of their sophistication was uncovered by the Telegraph in a report on their $1 billion foreign Turkish-based real estate empire. And it was an incredible thing to see. You know, entire neighborhoods and condos, ovnik condos, upmarkets, wanky condos built and run by Hamas. And obviously there's more evidence of the Turkish complicity and sheltering of, of Hamas, allowing them to build up those resources there. But I think that it gives some indication of what we're up against, that this is an organization that's got a deep reserves, it's got deep pockets, and therefore it raises the question, if you smash them in Gaza, does that decimate a billion-dollar organization that's got strong foreign bases? That's something that Israeli planners are going to need to focus on. But Ben you know, has the weak comes to an end over here, I believe it's time we're allowed to talk about a couple of bright spots, are we not?
1: I was happy to uh, see a letter that was penned by nine university presidents in Israel that was sent to their colleagues, their uh, contemporaries in America. We know that academic institutions in America, especially uh, the Ivy League schools, uh, which are very influential because the graduates there are going on to become American leaders and uh, American journalists as well. And the university presidents in Israel basically wrote and said that you've got to protect your Jewish students. I just want to quote one line from the letter where they say, Moreover, we expect that Israeli and Jewish students and faculty on university and college campuses will be accorded the same respect and protections as any other minority we know that jewish students feel under attack we've written about this in the magazine for many years jonathan rosenblum certainly our colleague has written many articles and op-eds on this over the years and i was just glad to see the nine university presidents here in israel take a stand on this because also i'm very carefully looking for signs of any cracks in the solidarity here in israel so far i don't see too many that are serious or threatening however universities are bastions of liberalism and this would have been the first place or one of the first places where we might see cracks in solidarity and
0: uh, on that basis this letter is encouraging to me as well. And we'll see much more of that, that solidarity endure here in Israeli society and I do think that when Israelis and Jews are united amongst themselves both in a metaphysical and in a very concrete sense we see that's good for our posture and the way we're perceived elsewhere. We should have only good news over Shabbos ben and I wish you a good Shabbos. Shabbat shalom
1: to all of Am Amen.